out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the singer-songwriter-performer Gene Caffeine, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. Indeed, I did. Um, this is the interview. She was in lots of different sort of musical combos over the years. Probably one of the most famous ones is a all-women-no-wave no band from New York in the early 80s called Paul Salama, which featured an amazing array of people, which was all very exciting and has gone on to do lots of solo stuff as well. But this is the interview. You're going to find out everything and much, much more. Anyway, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Jean, it's over to you. Well, because I'm American, you know, and we didn't have what you had, my musical awakening was probably seeing the Rolling Stones in 1975. Right. Because before that, I had a Captain and Tennille album, you know, like, uh, and I had, you know, as a kid, I had these musicals. I think I have a secret, like, uh, you know, what's it called when you have secret shame? Like I... Called <laughs> a guilty like, pleasure. They refer to it as a guilty pleasure, don't they? Pleasure. Like I still, I could still sing you a bunch of musicals, but that does not go with my punk rock uh, identity or my you know very well crafted identity that you know you can't craft your identity in the era of the internet <laughs> no but but in the old days you could sort of guard it a bit more couldn't you and and not sort of admit to liking annie get your gun or um yeah, exactly so, exactly uh, once yeah. upon a mattress or you're a good man charlie brown yes all of that but you know if you search the internet, you're not going to find me singing "You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown." No, <laughs> not as a, but, not um, as a. Yeah, so I think I I had you know I'm trying to write a memoir, and you're supposed to have pivot points. So the first pivot point, I guess, is seeing the Stones because as soon as that was over, I was like, oh, live music, rock and roll. Right after that, I went to see. <laughs> you know, we had all these big like outdoor concerts. I mean, compared to England, it was so lame. I mean, you're seeing David Bowie. I went to see Peter Frampton. You know, I'm 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 four years older than you. But yes. on the Frampton tour was um was the Last Faces tour and uh Eric Burden with War. So it wasn't so terrible. But I just saw all this arena stuff for two years and I was just I just blew up my life to go to these rock shows and then <laughs> And then I really don't know what happened first, whether I saw the Sex Pistols on the Tom Snyder show before I saw a poster for these punk rock bands, but there really wasn't punk rock in San Francisco yet. I just saw this very arresting poster Yes, uh, because I would spend a lot of time in North Beach. You know, that's the area associated with the Beatniks. Um, and it had really nice... Um, used clothing stores and great bookstore, famous bookstore, City Lights. And yes. uh, it's near Chinese food and Italian food. So this was not near my house, but that was my favorite neighborhood. So I'd, I'd, I'd go walk the neighborhood and I saw this poster and it looked arresting. So I went by the club in the day and I asked them, would they let in a minor? And they said, yes. Because they served, it was a Filipino supper club, and they served, they served a, a Filipino buffet of 
noodles and egg rolls called lumpia. Um, so I, I struggle to remember if the first band I saw were the nuns or crime. It was one of them. And then later I would see both of them together. I just sort of have to pick one for my memoir because I can't, yes. I keep just <laughs> trying to, I keep trying to nail it down and that just puts me cycling. Um, yes. And so that is the second pivot point. It, it was something point. unusual was going on there. It was, I think it was crime. <laughs> I do think it was crime, not the nuns, but both of them like wore leather and sang about offensive things. And I, I very much just remember this weird cast of characters hanging out, all older than me. And some so did of them... You I was, going, I, was going to, I was going to say, did your parents have much influence on your cultural upbringing? Did they did they have quite a impact? Because you did, you did. Then, yes, until then, yes. But uh, but but once I became this rock and roller, and much more once I became this punk rocker, they were like, "Get out, get out!" <laughs> but but they had a great record collection, and my mom was a poet and a literary critic and a wannabe biographer. And my dad was a doctor, uh, but he was the world's biggest art lover. So I definitely had a sort of a bed of uh, privilege and um, encouragement for the art making piece in my life. And my dad would, you know, buy me markers when it was my birthday, buy me markers when it was my, when it was Christmas. Why were we celebrating Christmas? We're Jewish. I don't know, but... We American Jews, many of us, very secular, yes. very, very, very secular. You know, immigrants, immigrants want to become Americans. So uh, and and I think now people have have more pride in the cultures they came from and hold on to more of the culture. I think in Canada, people hold on to more of their culture. But in America, I think we we were big on assimilation. And so yes. Yes, the, the, they, they refer to it as the melting pot, didn't they? Because your mum was Emily, wasn't she? Was yeah. that right? And she wrote a book on on was it Myrna Lloyd, who yeah, um Myrna Lloyd, Myrna who, Lloyd, who, who who sort of starred in loads of movies during the forties and fifties with this great actor, didn't um didn't she? Yeah. Which was uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Banking on his name, but I can picture him. William Powell. William, William, William Powell. That's the one. The Thin Man films. These all yeah. these films came out. So, did you kind of hear stories about all all these kind of character famous characters from the thirties and forties? Well, she really didn't get into that until late, late, late in my adulthood. In my teens, she was trying to write about a kind of obscure character named Gertrude Atherton. In California, there's a city named after her. And she had kind of fascinating life, but because she wasn't Myrna Loy, she wasn't Rudolph Valentino, she wasn't Mae West, it was very hard to sell the book. My mom tried to sell that book for 10 years. Right. Um, so I didn't really, you know, we heard, you know, in adulthood, I heard a lot of stories about uh, Mae West, none of yes. which I remember because I really think my memory is tanking. Not what you want from a memoirist. <laughs> a one of the memoirists. It's really a bit of a puzzle. I have, to, I have to interview other people to find out what I did. Yes, um, I know. This is like true. Memento. It's like and memento. Did, 
<laughs> oh, yes, of course. We remember that film so well, piecing it together. Did you, I mean, being in California, did you suddenly, or not suddenly, but sort of have that awareness of things like the, the 60s counterculture and tie-dye patchouli, and also yeah. things like the coquettes? The, the coquettes come from California, don't they? The famous Fayette. And so, uh, so as far as the kind of peace and love piece, that was definitely in the background. Uh, I, you know, I went to um like a you know war protest with my mom i remember somebody I, I remember us sitting on this hippie hill and somebody passing a joint but of course you're four or five you're you're not like why are they passing me that joint i'm like why are they passing a child a cigarette yes that's wrong mom um <laughs> so i i remember the clothes i remember that my my uh my parents had this friend bob bebo and he had a garage sale and what I really, really, really wanted from the garage sale was Indian bedspread. They were like very trendy in the 60s. Yes. And when it didn't sell, he gave me the Indian bedspread. So I remember a lot of the trappings of the 60s. Um, as far as the coquettes, that's such a different thing. And I feel like I, I had a moment as a teen where I was a little bit immersed in like gay Polk Street culture. But I really didn't know who the coquettes were until much, much later. And yes. so I didn't experience the coquettes. I probably started hearing about the coquettes through the screamers, because I think Tomato De Plente of the screamers um, might have performed with the coquettes. And if he didn't, he performed with a like a New York version of a wild theater troupe. But this is getting fuzzy. Yes. Uh, you know, Penelope Houston, she knows Fayette, Penelope Houston of the Avengers. And and in fact, we tried to knock on a door of a cool house where she said Fayette lived. This was about a year, two years ago, but uh, no one answered. So I didn't meet Fayette. And oh, that's, so close. Uh, I, I hear stories. I hear stories. Did you interview Fayette? Oh, yes, yes, because she brought this amazing book out a couple of years ago. So I've done quite a few of the members of the Coquettes who, surprisingly, oh. quite a lot are still alive, which are quite nice. So, um, yes, Pam Tent and a few other chaps. So, um, there, Are there any documentaries about the Coquettes? Yes, there is. You can find it and um, probably stream one. Yeah, actually, there is one particular one, which is just behind me, somewhere up there. Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, so um, you're just a total pop culture junkie. Pop yes, rock this is, is not your specialty. That's just something that's happened recently, and somehow I got. You I'm got still you. Trying to figure out how how you're interviewing me. I'm pretty <laughs> low on the radar here. I mean, like I'm like the the cult of the cult figures. No, oh, that, that's good. I, cult figures. I do. I do sort of have a ability to dig down. So look, so you mentioned the Avengers. So I did an interview with Penelope. And um, yes, and they were supporting the Sex Pistols in 78, weren't they? At Winter. Yeah. In, yeah. Winter they blew them off the stage. Well, yeah. I would think that because we're from San Francisco. But, you know, that's their last show. They weren't very good. Uh, Sid was unplugged for a lot of it. He's yes. Totally He's totally wasted. Uh, John said, do you ever get the feeling you've been cheated? And the answer was yes. I and mean, it's very disappointing <laughs> I'm a person who's always had very high expectations. Yes. And I have such high expectations for that show. But if you talk to someone different, they'll be like, oh, that show was a blast. So, you know, to each his own. I thought it was terrible. 
you know, they played all these kicker bars, these country bars, because Malcolm wanted all that attention. But then I guess this was the the money shot, the money gig, because it was in a, you know, a, a, a concert hall. But it was, you know, that's where I'd seen Journey. That's where I'd seen Boston. That's where I'd seen Sammy Hagar. That's not where you should go see the Sex Pistols. And no. once I did my punk rock conversion, you know, I didn't want to be in that same place where I'd seen mostly shitty 70s rock bands <laughs> and a few fantastic ones like The Who. Um, so, yeah, The Avengers did a great job. I don't think we just say that because we had our own kind of, what you know, xenophobic regionalism or whatever. Uh, but if you, you know, you can go back now and see see those shows, right? You've, you've seen them on Winter yes. on Pretty amazing that you can. That yes, you can. I, th I think, but I think by that stage, I think the Sex Pistols had pretty well had enough, hadn't they? That was that was the end. I think they they kind of wish they'd say goodbye before that that kind of moment happened. But um, it was kind of poetic. So when you got to that period in life, then you would have been a perfect age for punk, wouldn't you? That would have been sixteen. That's what I tell my dad because he's still so mad at me for being like a disrespectful, rebellious teenager punk rocker i'm like i told him just a, a year ago this was biologically and psychologically normative yes my, my rebellious biology and neurochemistry perfectly aligned with this movement there's no yes. reason to grudge about it, it no I mean, <laughs> you, well i think whenever you hit that sort of 16 18 year old phase whatever popular culture is happening is what you're going to consume and i think Anything that comes along later, you might be interested and might listen to, but you can't have that same, I don't think you have that quite that same kind of moment. It doesn't have that kind of, it doesn't resonate so much into the the DNA of your soul and your psyche as um, as that kind of moment. Because I think it's important because I know, you know, people like Lemmy from Motorhead used to sort of talk about his kind of influences, which were also Little Richard and <clears throat> Eddie Cochran and Buddy Holly and you know, all yeah. these kind of people. But, you know, that was what he listened to when he was 16. And though, you know, people thought, you must love this band, you know, and this band, you know, decades later. It's like, yeah, but that's that wasn't what I listened to when I was 16, which was the formative moment, really. So um, I think I am the same, but I'm also different because just because of happenstance and my own, like, travels and stuff, I... I was part of more than one scene, so I have a little bit, a little bit more breadth than maybe some others. Because after, after San Francisco and punk rock, I, I, I well, I did go to England for a few months, and then I, and then I came back to San Francisco, and then I went to New York. I was part of that club scene that overlapped with the kind of no wave post punk, you know, bands like, you know, one of my roommates was in in the Bush Tetras, so. Oh my God! Which one? Laura. Pat. Laura. Not Pat. Well, Pat and Laura went out, and then they broke up. And Pat lived on Sixth Avenue, and right. I lived around the corner. And I I bumped into one of them. I feel like I bumped into Pat. I barely. I never really knew Pat that well. I very much admired her, but at some point, Pat or Laura's like we're breaking up, and I'm like I perpetually needed a roommate. I lived around almost around the corner from them. And and you know I was in that band Paul Salama, right? Um, I didn't... So... <laughs> Which one so, was that? 
was cold pulse salama. And I think you want to do your digging on that. Because, yes. Because you'll get a kick out of it. It was, you know, uh, between seven and 13 women banging on cowbells and uh, no guitars, trap drums, percussion, one or two basses. And um, we were kind of the queens of New York for a minute. Yes. And we did play in England. We played at the venue. Oh, blimey. So look. And so we played when... also at, at the, the club in Manchester that Claude Bessie booked. You know, he he didn't he book the factory for a minute or? He might have done, yes. Yeah. And, okay. and yeah, we played three, three British dates. And we opened for The Clash five times. Right. Blimey. <laughs> so you just thought you were uh, interviewing like this old punk rocker who makes some art, who makes collages, which is true. But I also was in this other scene. Also, when I got to Austin, it was really, really happening. And to some degree, I was a big part of that scene, too. So I feel like I'm unusual in that sense that I I caught several things from the kind of classic rock and kind of I don't know what kind of culture we had in San Francisco before punk rock but I was very immersed in that and then yes. the punk rock and that was like you know life-changing more than anything else like like you're talking about but but the New York period was really happening you know so it was did, like did you go to New York in the late 70s with the, the period of CBGB's and Max's Kansas City before the Mud Club suddenly appeared. I no, I'm 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 more was there during the Mud Club, not at the very beginning. I I went for a visit in 78, and it's when uh one of the dead boys, the drummer, had gotten stabbed, and there were several nights of concerts, and I saw those. Um, but I, I wasn't part of that scene. I was just sort of a tourist that was trying to, you know, I I thought maybe I'd be part of the New York scene just by showing up, but New York isn't like that. <laughs> In New York, you always got to know someone. Weirdly, weirdly, you asked me all that like hippie stuff about San Francisco, which, you know, we hated as punk rockers, but weirdly, during the week or two that I was in New York on my way to go to London, uh, the movie Hair was filling, filming in Golden Gate Park, and they were looking for extras. So right. me and my wife was even more of a theater nerd than me. She's like, we got to go try to be featured extras for Hair. I'm like, how ironic is it to, like, have come up, you know, as a child in the era of peace and love, totally reject it in punk rock. Nothing worse than, like, a hippie during, in punk rock. And then we're just trying to, you know be extras like frolicking on the lawn but we were too busy bleaching our hair punk rock white we got there late so we weren't featured extras we were just like on the on, on the, the periphery lawn. so i mean yeah. you mentioned you mentioned the famous you know Frampton comes live and boston and journey <laughs> yeah. but did you yeah. did you ever go to a grateful dead concert oh they were so horrible that's my, i would i i guess i had a pre-punk rock dna you know, because I just thought they were awful, just <laughs> awful. And then, you know, I would I like to go to Winterland almost every weekend before before my uh, punk conversion. And just a lot of times it was some 
spinoff of the Grateful Dead. I just, I just never drank that Kool-Aid. I never got it. I would fight. I would fight with my best friend's sister. She would say the Grateful Dead are the best band in the world. And I'd be like, the, this is before punk. The Tubes are the best band in the world because <laughs> I like theatrics. Yes. I you love did. their theatrics. Before they had the big hit and they started sounding like Journey too. they were like wild and fabulous and unique and indescribable if you never saw them. They they come on stage with a motorcycle, but they weren't a huge band. You know, a, a band in a huge arena might, now might come on stage with a motorcycle, but this was like in a little club. <laughs> it was, it, you know, they had a trapeze artist. It was wild. Yes, absolutely. So then as as we as we trucked into the 80s, you know, we had Thatcher and then we had the Falkland War, then we had the miners' strike, you know, Greenham Common, we thought everybody was going to be nuked. You had Ronald Reagan. So what so by then, the early 80s, you were ensconced in the New York punk scene at this point. Not I I would not call it a punk scene. I wasn't really in the punk scene. I was more in the club scene, right. which overlapped with the kind of no wave scene which overlapped with when hip-hop came downtown from the Bronx. From the Bronx, so it, right. It was an incredible, is it zeitgeist is the right word? I think zeitgeist, yes, good word. Incredible cauldron of popular culture. Just unbelievable. So <laughs> when, did, when did you first meet Anne Magnuson? Oh, some, at some point at Club 57, uh, I didn't really know her very well, but I I had played drums in a band in San Francisco, and then I moved. And I probably was the type of person that was always trying to show these very cool New Yorkers that I was cool too. And it was mm -hmm. some work. And if you're cool, you don't tell everybody you're cool. So no. obviously it wasn't, you know. Uh, I felt like, you know, San Francisco was this pretty hip place. But when I moved to New York, where I was born, where so many of my relatives were from, I sort of felt like a hill, hillbilly wearing a potato sack. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's a microaggression. Just, I'm sorry, Appalachian people. But I felt like I was, <laughs> you know, just very green. But I really wasn't. But people were so phenomenally cool there that uh, anyways so I didn't really know Anne but I think this talking about playing drums uh led me to uh play drums in a Velvet Underground tribute band that only had three shows right and for a minute I think before I arrived on the scene for a minute the bass player who put it together Kai Eric who's played with a lot of other people like the Panther Burns. Um, <clears throat> this was Kai's project, and she'd probably seen me do this, uh, be, you know, be cast as Maureen Tucker in this Velvet Underground band. So the Club 57 was full of theme events. It, I don't know if you've done any research on Club 57. Yes, it seems like where the beautiful people hung out and was kind of very... No, the Mud Club is where the beautiful people hung out. <laughs> the, the Club 57 is where... Some of them were beautiful people, but this kind of funky cast of characters, very insular, 
friends, more tied into the SVA art school scene, but also tied into like liking monster movies. It's just, I don't, the, mo the thing I always describe it as is like, you know that movie where it's Jimmy, uh, oh God, it's Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland and they say, let's put on a show. You know that it's like a '40s movie, right? Yes, I've got you. It's yeah. Well, I don't. I just kind of. I don't know. Let's put on a show. There was this kind of let's put on a show vibe there, but in a very clicky, imaginative, retro, almost more like almost more like B-52s-ish, except it was a um, multimedia venue. You could see a movie. You could see a play. Uh, I I had an art show there. I stole my idea. I borrowed my idea from Keith Haring. So it wasn't an original idea. Uh, it was a color Xerox art show. There was just something different happening every night. Uh, and kooky stuff would happen. And so part of this kooky stuff was uh, the ladies auxiliary of the Lower East Side, of which Anne was a part of. Maybe she was the leader, I don't know, because I wasn't in the ladies auxiliary of Lower East Side. They put on this night, Rites of Spring Bacchanal, <laughs> and they wanted a band. Not a very, I don't know if they, it wasn't really exactly a band, mm -hmm. but Anne asked me if I would play drums at the event. And everybody was wearing togas made out of sheets. And um, it was just completely wild and all these women were banging on things beer bottles cowbells at least one person played the bass and played the bass um and it was a huge smash people loved it it was so crazy it wasn't a band it was just this event but it had noise making and so very shortly afterwards, we were invited to play a club called The Cavern, which was a short-lived downtown club. And there was a budget so we could make a little money and we had a budget to decorate. And decorating was always like a big part of things that happened at Club 57. So right. the reason I'm saying it wasn't so beautiful, people, is it, you know, it had this sort of arts and crafts aspect and this retro aspect and this kind of clicky aspect, even though I was sort of on the edges of that. Um, and it was multidisciplinary. My God, and it that was sounds... the basement of a church. I mean, it was not fancy. Um, right. There was no guy at the door with a velvet rope. Um, yes. Because I did a I did an interview with dear old um oh yes, Richard doing his his the his the mud club book, which is yeah. a kind of a yeah, so I got a sort of an idea of um Yes, that kind of you know, scene. Now, now anyone who's alive, we all identify together as part of this scene. But at the time, there were all these like circles and the circles would sometimes overlap in a Venn diagram. Were you a Mud Club person? Were you a Club 57 person? Were you a Danceteria person? Were you a... I guess you know, there's CBGBs and Max's Kansas City as well. Those predated and they're more, and those are like, rock and roll based, right? Whereas these other clubs are less, bands played at them and and whatever we would call the music of the moment featured prominently at Danceteria and featured 
somewhat prominently at, at Mud Club and lots of other clubs. I saw lots of live music, tons of live music. But there were disparate things happening at these clubs. Again, more, more breadth to them. Whereas, you know, you're never, to my knowledge, and I'm no expert on CBs, but I doubt they had like an art show or a play. No, you know? God. It but at Club happen. 57, you know, Scott Whitman and Mark Shaman put on several plays and now they're on Broadway, you know. Amazing. Yes, it is good. So then I, the band. I was in one of the plays. I was in one of the plays. Oh, which one? Trojan Women. Nice. Gosh. It was. Hollywood um... Lawn was in it. Cherry Vanilla was in it. You're so you're so uh, pop culture literate. I could just throw the names that you. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, uh, Cherry, I've interviewed her as well, so it's like quite handy actually. Yeah, <laughs> she now lives in Palm Springs. So oh, look, so yeah. Um, yeah, she's doing well. She's she's good. Yeah. But look, so how does the band then form? You know, Pulse um, Pulse It 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 seems to be a, a, there's some dispute about the origin story. From many of the women, I hear that the ladies auxiliary of the Lower East Side had the event and wanted to have this, you know, noise-making performance. I got in it from Anne asking me. So mm -hmm. it's very hard for me to answer that question because I think if you ask Anne, she says she started it. And if you ask other women in the band, they're like, no, we were all part of this group. I can't speak to it. But no. what happened is because it was so well received, we did it again. And if you do it again, like these jokey things you do start becoming songs and you rehearse them. So this song piece started growing, but it always came out of something performance-based. And then when Anne left, it got a little less performance-based. Mostly we just rehearsed, so we got more musical. <laughs> which some people didn't like uh because but it still was chaotic and it still was performative and still was incredibly silly but it didn't really start out as a band it just it became something that existed as a function of its own success so people people were so entertained so yes. you know the cavern we got a show at danceateria i worked at danceateria in the coat check i sometimes worked at danceateria as a dj on an even more rare occasions, sometimes I threw parties at Danceteria. And so I was like in the inside of the Danceteria thing. Um, so that may or may not have been why we got shows there. We probably got shows there because, you know, word of mouth buzz happening. Jim Farratt had an ear to the pavement all the time. So I don't know if it came from me working there. Later, Min was also in Pulsalama work there too. Yes, but but obviously you get kind of support slots with Public Image Limited, which is amazing. Oh, we we were kicked off that support slot. You were kicked. <laughs> we off never the... played it. We never played it. Keith, oh. Keith got us kicked off. Adam. Keith got us kicked off. What Keith Levine? Yeah. Oh. R.I.P. Oh. Right. <laughs> he got us kicked off. He he married our bass player, who he met through me because he was my friend who I let bathe in the bathtub in the kitchen of my apartment. <laughs> oh, who who was the bass player that he married? Lori, Lori Montana. Right. Gosh, it's it's like she's a, in a very... band called Art. Before Pulse Lama, she's in a band called Art. And and 
And I think she had a little label, a little record label for a while. She's a very nice person who you can interview. She has an interesting story too, but I don't know if she wants to talk about the Keith thing. She had a son with Keith. Right, right. But anyways, after I introduced them, the story goes that Keith said, it's me or the band. <laughs> Old fashioned man. You wouldn't think. I don't you know. really wouldn't think. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, it's a it's a sort of indication of things to come. So that was Lori that was Lori did say that she was having a lot of stage fright, but I did not know that at the time. I only knew the piece where she had to choose and she made the Sophie's choice and she chose Keith. Yes. And that was incredibly heartbreaking because she was the glue for the band. She got mm. along with everyone, you know, where yeah, I was yeah. a little more high drama. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's I could imagine, you know, young people, lots of you. It's it's a high, it's a high drama kind of period, isn't it? So then, but then you support the Clash and you come to the UK as well. We did not come to the UK supporting the Clash. We came to the UK just doing three club dates. We probably supported people, but I don't remember who they were. Yes. Um, uh, but that wasn't a part with the Clash. We we played with the Clash at, at Asbury Park, three dates, and Cape Cod, I think, was just two dates. And how did and that go down? <laughs> on the first night, it pelted us with tons of things, and people got and people in the band got bruises. Not me, because I'm so far in the back playing <laughs> drums. On the second night, less pelting. Before the third night, someone said, hey, why didn't you play the whatever song? So I guess, uh, they, you know, uh, there was some warming to the band. But, you know, the Clash would program these fantastic bands, which nobody in which the the Clash's American audience wasn't um, open to. You know, they, they, just the hits, just the hits. Yes. So I, they, 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 I mean, I saw them at Bonds with the slits opened, Grandmaster Flash opened. I don't remember which shows I saw. I know I saw the slits. The audience was not nice to the slits. I think ESG might have opened. Definitely they booed Grandmaster Flash. I mean, the Clash had impeccable taste and were on the cutting edge and, and Cosmo. Um, but, but the audience wasn't where the clash was. No. And so we weren't super well received. We and and then Cape Cod was worse. <laughs> Cape Cod was even worse. And um Yes, tricky, tricky times. But you recorded and we were supposed to open for Pill on on New Year's. And you may have seen an ad, advert for it, but it, it didn't happen. <laughs> and is this that's, the one is this that's the one that they, bone, they... Intention with me. Okay. Is this one where the band Pill play behind a sheet and it all kicks off and is a riot, or is that another no, gig? That's, that, was at the Ritz. that was at the Ritz. I don't think I was there because, you know, I guess I went from really, really loving Pill before before I moved to, to New York. I, I saw Pill play in Los Angeles and San Francisco. I thought they were excellent. Um, but, you know, this whole thing with Keith like broke our hearts and yes. took our favorite person away 
And I don't know about you, but when my heart's broken, I'm pretty mad. <laughs> yes, I'm, 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 I hold on to that pain and um, yeah. anger for yeah. a long time. Yes, yeah. I know. Yeah. I mean, I think at one point Keith Facebooked me and I was like, he friended me. I'm like, you're not my friend. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> if I, the funny thing is, I, I see this in my father that if I don't interface with somebody, I can hold on to that stuff for a long time. But if I bump into you, it's over. I don't care. Just want to be friends. It just goes away. Yes. Uh, but if you don't see the person, you can hold it. And so, you know, that it was just, it just broke my heart. He took our, he took our bass player. He took our most reasoned friend away and he'd been my friend. Yes, that's, yes, there you go. I can't... Sorry, yeah. he's a super talented musician, but it's a junkie. Like what's he, what's this, what's the sell? I know, I know. And it's, uh, it's true. I can't remember. Did he? Is I he lost still two a... friends because he was my friend too. I lost two friends, <laughs> but I, I after a while, I only mourned the loss of the one, Lori. Yes, absolutely. And you recorded on Y Records, which was uh, Dick Dick yeah. O'Dell's label, wasn't it? Yeah. And what was I that? Think I think met Dick O'Dell when when the pop group came to town. I went to see them at Tier Three. Yes. Uh, and I, you know, I. In England, I'd gone to see the Raincoats. I feel like that's kind of a similar crowd. Yes. Uh, um, I, I don't even know how to describe that crowd. Kind of ragtag and very original. And very indie. Very what, So um, indie. Before we would have a word for it. So yes. I would call them unique, not indie. Because you know what? Indie is so generic at this point. Uh, maybe, it, maybe... Just, I don't know, totally unique. Um, yes, absolutely. There, there was the, uh, yes, the Raincoats, the Marine Girls. There were a lot of great bands at that. The Dolly Mixtures as well. They were very good. So when, so so how did the band pairs, come to an pairs, end? What was that? I like the Au Pairs. They weren't Y Records, but I like oh the Au Pairs. Oh, my God. I, I interviewed Leslie last night. Oh, you did? Yes. Uh, she came over to my house. She came over to my apartment. On New Year's, I think the au pairs opened for the Gang of Four. And right. I have a friend, Leticia Torero. She worked in a Japanese restaurant and she knew how to make dumplings. So I I asked Leticia Torero if she would come over and we made like a zillion dumplings. And then like people came over to my incredibly tiny apartment. Some of them were in the au pairs. <laughs> and yes. I remember going out with uh, Leslie to Bleecker Street, we had a slice of pizza. And you know how polite you all are. You're so polite. And she said, lovely pizza. Nobody uses lovely to describe <laughs> food in America. I was like, I never heard pizza described as lovely. Yes. I love it. It's so nice. So, well, um, anyway, Leslie's Leslie's doing some two, three weeks of um, a solo show supporting the chameleons starting oh, tonight, I think, in okay. Liverpool. And, um, yeah, yeah, so she's keeping well. It's uh, nice. It's nice to see her again. So, um, yes. So she she wants to make more music again after decades of doing other things. So, well, it's um, very gratifying. I want to make more music too. I just recorded three songs, um, and I'm I'm pretty proud of it. But I don't know what to do with it in this moment. You know, for us dinosaurs, if there's no kind of support system, 
it just gets lost. It just gets lost in the noise. So I'll go longer and longer and not record. I'll go longer and longer and not play out. But I always want to. It's just you. It's so hard to get people to your shows. It's I, I could do all the things people do now. Yes. But the people my age mostly aren't doing those things. So and they're not going out unless they're going to see a band from their youth, you know. I know this is this is one of our problems. So how it's does really a built-in heartbreak? It is a built-in heartbreak. But so how does this your the band break up at this point? Does it just naturally putter out, or is there a exciting moment? I really kind of think it limped along after Lori. And we got another bass player and she tried her best. But this is a very clicky crowd of people, and we probably didn't totally let her in. And she didn't have that kind of pizzazz that Lori had. There was so much drama. The singer Wendy got with her husband. That didn't help. Yes. <laughs> um, and then yet she was, <laughs> I think, still in the band. Uh, we got signed to be booked by, I is it IRS or yes. FBI? One of those. And we've been a very spoiled and privileged band that had always made money and had always gotten a lot of attention every time we played. And when they booked us, they booked us like a regular band. So we went and played in Brooklyn, the bowels of Brooklyn, not trendy Brooklyn. There was no trendy Brooklyn and nobody was there. And then they maybe booked us and it might've been them that booked us in Trenton, New Jersey. They just booked us like a couple very soul-crushing shows, which now that I've played music for years, I mean, half of them are soul-crushing shows. Grow a pair, yes. you know, get, 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 get some thicker skin. But we were having a lot of, we, we had a series of things not go our way. Dick O'Dell said he had no more money. Yes. And we had 90%, we had 90% of the mu music recorded and about 10, 20% of the vocals recorded. So they were just all these really bad impediments. You know, it's it's like an arc. It's like you're writing, you know, I write my memoirs all over the place. There's no arc. Maybe you'll <laughs> not get published. I, it's a really a struggle for me. What does a person who didn't know what they're doing, how does a person character, characterize their arc when you didn't even know what you were doing back then? Yes, Paul Salama, I think we we did kind of know what we were doing, and there were all these impediments. Anne left. We got over that. Did it without Anne. Dane, but you know, it was a loss. But then it became something else. It was great with Anne, but it was great without Anne. It was just different. No, you know, same thing. Danny and Andy were in the band. Danny was a total original. She's so unique. But life went on. We missed Danny. But the band was still good. I, I really think it was. Yes. But then Lori left. I, that's when, to me, it, it wasn't as good. And so there was that impediment. And when the album wasn't going to get finished, then any friction we had, which I know I was a part of, um, amped, ramped up. So there was some fight and it was the end. But, you know, it, 
I feel like the whatever the fight was a symptom and wasn't the wound. You mm -hmm. might talk to someone else and they'll have a different story. Okay. Mm -hmm. It was very, very, very discouraging to go into the studio with Butch. Is it Butch Jones who engineered the, all the Talking Heads records? And yes. Mark Cairns, who, you know, did the Madonna, everybody, and have a blast doing it, have something that sounded so good. I brought my parents to the studio and then have it just disappear. You know, maybe Dick just didn't want to be involved in the band anymore. I, I don't know what it was. I think that broke the band, you know. Yes, but, absolutely. But I'm sure there was drama, and I'm sure I was a part of drama. But it's that, it that broke the band. You know, you know, when things break, they don't just break. It's like a piece of mat board. Things get scored. And, you know, when Anne left, slightly scored. When Danny left, scored a little deeper. When Lori left, scored much deeper. Picked off the pill show. That's just sort of like being kicked in the face. The other bass player, Judy, we liked her, but it just, it never quite gelled. I don't think we were nice enough to Judy in retrospect, but it's easy to, you know, hindsight. Yes. Uh, and then, but the big, the big ticket item is, is Dick saying he had no money. And the th I mean, it's one thing to have no money. You barely started it. This thing's almost done. And it sounded great. So when so, you, anyway. so when the album comes out, all the sing, do you have a sort of couple of singles and then a sort of album that came out just over thirteen years ago? Are these kind of did? Were you pleased with the sound that they created and and had managed yeah. to capture? Yes, but the, but no full album came out until twenty twenty. The full yes. album came out in twenty twenty was from a live recording. I mean, our album. Our beautifully recorded album, our multi-tracked album, gone. I tried so hard to try to find out, you know, where are these tracks? I heard that there was a fire in the studio. Oh, I my mean, God. I mean, yeah. Hey, I would love to pivot because you said you want to ask me about my creative work. And I know the story is all in the old stuff, but yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. So then, um, yeah. So then, just going forward, then what other what what's the next kind of project that you're working on, and then going to for the next stage of your well, life? For, for about two years, I played in a band called Clambake that had none of the attention of um, Paul Salama, and it was more guitar driven, and it featured two people from uh, Austin, and one of them called me up because several people from the San Francisco punk scene had moved to Austin and become part of the Austin music scene. So when these two women, um, Liz Gall and Kathy Crane, moved to New York, they looked me up and we made a band. It was a very sweet band with, with, with several songwriters, all of whom were really good. Um, and that ran its course because that band, I mean, definitely interpersonal things were a piece of that but I also think that ran band ran its course because it didn't take off like like Paul Salama yes um, and and at the same time some people from Paul Salama joined a band called Dust Fur Lines they seemed to be having a moment where they played polka music and they 
play Montreal. And they seem to have a little moment too, a, a similar moment to like the Pulse Lama moment of, of ladies doing weird things <laughs> on stage performatively, you know, not your normal band, not your normal band, not doing what Bananarama was doing. No. Not doing what the Bengals were doing, just something weirder. Um, and so uh, Clampake also had a moment where we recorded a demo at Richard Hell's home studio, not with him producing, with this other guy producing, yeah. and where Alex Chilton mixed our four-song EP. But that guy seemed to run out of money, too. I don't know the order of events. We may have broken up, and he may have said, I don't want to spend money on a band that's broken up. So that didn't come out either. But those tracks now are, you can hear the the demo ones. You can hear them on the, um, you can look for them on YouTube. So there was that chapter. And then I was still in New York, but I was shifting. I was shifting to wanting, you know, to go to the park more or the beach more. And I was shifting from a drummer to wanting to learn to play guitar and be a songwriter, which I was not very good at. I was... I was better at being a songwriter than a guitar player. I was terrible, terrible, terrible guitar player. Um, but I was shifting. And somehow through these girls, women that were from Austin, you know, I just kept meeting more people from Austin. And the San Francisco people, a lot of them had gone from San Francisco to New York to Austin. I was like, what is this place? It's like a Bermuda Triangle. I've yes. got to go check this place out so I went with my former bandmate uh Julie Lawler and we we took Amtrak across country you got to have three stops right so uh one of them was in New Orleans one of them was in Austin uh and I went and checked out the scene and I'd already kind of made this kind of nature pivot and in Austin you could swim outside and people were like barbecuing. And my friend Alejandro lived on a block where there were other musicians, this fellow named Dickie Lee Irwin, who's a like a honey-coated human of a <laughs> individual, a banjo player, guitar player, songwriter from New Mexico. There was just people, there was so much more connectivity mm. in Austin, and you had more access to the outside. And the rents were really low. And the scenesters were really literate. I don't mean like they could read. I just mean like bookish because it was a college town. And yes. most of the scenesters had gone to UT and, uh, you know, could talk to you about Faulkner or whatever. Um, it's a little different than the mud club scene or, you know. Um, so it was very appealing to me. And I had taken a couple college classes at community college in New York because I'd been a big high school dropout um, in San Francisco because that punk rock scene was all consuming. Yes. <laughs> high school was good. You know, high school was getting in the way um, of hanging out. So I was kind of putting a toe in the water to further my education, which had probably been the trajectory that you know my middle class parents had earmarked for me and I was a big disappointment so I I came to Austin 
with a plan to take, I think, two classes at the out-of-town rate, which is quite expensive. Mm. Um, and when I liked it here, I was like, I'm going to stay and I'm going to wait a year so I can have in work and get in-state tuition. So as I did that, I started waitressing and I started bluffing my way into shows. But now I was the front person instead of the drummer. Yes. And I, I booked a show at a place called Pot Pato's Tacos, a place that had a big giant onion on top of the sign. And I told them I had a band, but I, I was fronting. I didn't have a band. And at a party at Alejandro's, I met a, a real cool guitar player named Mick Buck. And who's now the curator of the Country Music Hall of Fame? Right. Not Mike Buck. Not Mike Buck. Mike no. Buck owns Antones and is a drummer. Mike <laughs> uh, <Nick> Buck <laughs> played guitar, and now is this, uh, you know, curator, ethnomusicologist. Um, and so Mick said he would play, and I, and that was sort of the birth of a band that, that I formed called Gene Caffeine's All Night Truck Stop. So I'd gone from being a very bossy drummer in the back yes. <laughs> to being a slightly less bossy front person in the front. Hey, can we take five? Yes, absolutely. I'll hit, I'll just hit um, pause. Okay. I'll okay. put the light on. Happy period. Bad hair. Bad hair. I'm so glad that you're not going to. Yes, no, that's, that's fine. But look, so with, with the old band, the, the, the new lineup. Very happy period. Happy, happy period. What's happy. the question? This is like, this is the album Knocked Down Seven Times Got Up Eight. This is the first. Before that. Before that. Before. The first thing is there was a cassette. <laughs> there was a cassette called Big Wheel. Had four songs on it. Right. A German label. Uh, and then there was a. Actually, no. The, the Big Wheel was a full. First, I had four songs. But it, eventually I got an album's length version of that record called Big Wheel. And then a German company that really didn't exist put out just a few records and I was uh, CDs and I was the first one. And um, and I think they put out a Walter Silas Humara thing called the Silos. I don't know if he put out the Silos or a side project of Walter's. I can't remember. Um, and and I got to go play Berlin, a, a festival in Berlin because of that. Fantastic. That really I've never played in England. That's a real, real, um, I lament that. I really wanted to play in England. Yes. That is, I that still is. want to play in England. But, you know, I mean, rock and roll is almost dead for people our age. I'd have to have like house shows or something. It, yeah. So install kind of, mm -hmm. yeah. In store and at your house. and. And then I'm blanking on the name of a musician who you probably know because he's probably like exactly your age. And he does a radio show. And I think he's from Northern England. His name's John, John Armstrong. Do you know him and his band? No, John Armstrong. Let me, hmm. let me, let me go to face, Facebook while we're doing this. Right now, I can't remember the name of his band. He's really good at promoting his band and, and they, they, they keep making records. Uh, but I met him um, through, oh, God, I'm getting super distracted because I'm supposed to pick up a book. Not today, but uh, someone just wrote me. <laughs> um, 
Okay. What's the book? And the book is a book by the by the guy from Green on Red. Ooh. Okay. Hey, just give me two minutes. First of all, I need to look up this guy John Armstrong's band. And second, oh, I think the Green on Red guy is this the one of his kind of Dan 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 Stewart. Yeah, he's have the one who. Uh, but yes, I have interviewed him. He he lives in a shack somewhere in somewhere like Arizona, and um, yes. I remember he had a lot of squawking birds behind him. He had to keep sort of pushing them away because they were just making too much noise. But um, yes. Birds? He... Pardon? Birds? Yeah. He was sitting outside getting quite hot and sunny. So um, it was quite, he was very sweet, you know. Dan Stewart. Yeah, that's the one. He's so really has... interesting. He's really talented. Yes. I was, but... I was a huge fan of his band uh, during... You know, during that time when I was doing my nature pivot, <laughs> I, I got more into like guitar, you know, guitar bands. And that was my my favorite bands were Green on Red and the True True Believers. Um, oh, I, want, I I I I have the, the attention span of a gnat. I'm I was going to look for you. Um, Um. Uh, uh, okay, so John Armstrong, what's his band's name? I just think you might like him. Um, the music is sort of power punky. Um, right. I don't know how to describe it, but very songish. And he's and he has a record. He has a radio show. So right, I, uh, I, I will check him out, John Armstrong. So yeah, if you if you see the main oh, the band. band's called the speed the speed of sound or yeah, the speed of sound. The right. Band is, yeah. Okay. So then, so so with your yeah. with the with your with your new band and new lineup, you then yeah. sort of bring out. A, a lot of um yes you start getting on quite a prolific kind of recording period here don't you yes sort of, yes um, but you know almost all of them are are, are self-released except for the british one i have a lot of recordings um yeah so and are you, yeah and, and you put most of them on Bandcamp at this stage most of them are on Bandcamp, but for some reason i did i didn't put up the first one you know, because the so, I, somewhere in the house, I have one copy of the first one. And you know how our computers, before it was really easy to burn. A yes. CD, and now our computers are, are a different way. And it's hard to burn a CD. I, I could just go and get someone to do that for me for 25 bucks. And then I could put it up on Bandcamp. But I don't do a lot of business on Bandcamp. If I hustle... I you know in in the pandemic I hustled more to for those Fridays. I don't like the hustle. The hustle takes up too much of my creative time. Yes. And I'm just trying to be a little bit more discerning about my creative time and I'm very attention deficit and I'm very creative and it's very easy to start. It's harder to finish things. So I have to whittle some stuff down. And the best thing to me about not the best thing about the pandemic, but in the pandemic, I didn't play very much. And that was a drag. 
but I didn't have to do any self-promotion and that was heavenly. Yes. It, it's just a bunch of noise, man. It, and it takes up all your time and it turns you into like a, you know, we're already a, a, a business, but I don't want the business to be like a business. It's, we do this because we have passion and then we got to do all this stuff to advertise it and to, that's okay. That's part of the deal. But the way you're advertising it is just so irritating. <laughs> no, I know. I know. That's the old way where it was based around your story. I could do that. Yes. It... I don't want to do a little dance on TikTok. I feel like I should because I don't, I have some fear of missing out, but I'm, I'm 63. Do I do I really need to do a dance on TikTok? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I might blow the whole thing up with my dance. You know, it's and then be... I'm dancing to my own music on TikTok because I'm just trying to get more you know, eyes on my music. But you know, you're only playing 30 seconds of the music. People only have patience for 30 seconds of the music. Yeah. Today I have art class. And in the end, I really loved it, but it was a new batch of kids. And I don't teach kids very often anymore. And I can see the how the attention spans have shrunk and how the neurodiversity has grown. And, and that's there's, I'm not there's no judgment around that. It's just really different. And I was trying to kind of introduce something. It's the first day. And almost no one had their eyes on me. You know, it's like they're engaged in something else, they want to finish it. Or they don't do eye contact because yes. of the spectrum. And and I just had to let a lot of stuff go where before I'd be like, come on, <laughs> you know, I wanted them to have a good time. I want them to have a good time. But I also, you know, did a lot of work to do the lesson planning, was up at four. I don't want to blow it off just because they're really enjoying doodling on the folder that I'm having them make so they could put their collages in the folder. <laughs> the the folder is a is a is what we call a sponge project. It's just supposed to sponge up extra time. The folder is not the project. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is very tricky. So on your on your sort of discography and your Bandcamp page, you've got four solo albums, and the last one was a beautiful one called Sadie Saturday Night, wasn't it? So that's yeah. that was the last album that you've put it, put out, or have you got more I put material? Out, there's a there's a four song EP that came out after Sadie. It doesn't have the same kind of, you know, it's not themey. Doesn't have spoken word. It just kind of got lost in the shuffle. Has got uh, one of my collages on the cover. Um, so I have put out a set of four songs since then, uh, but it was really kind of hard to get any attention for it. I even put, you know, I, I did a show, I, I did a record release that was sponsored by our wonderful, wonderful, wonderful community radio station, co-op radio. And it was at a wonderful uh, venue called the Barrel of Fun that's attached to uh, the Alamo Draft House, our, our franchise that has funky films. But I don't know, it just... This is what happens to most people who put out records that are my age. Yes. Uh, so it it makes it really tricky to know if we should keep doing it. Uh, think... You know, if you're, if you're someone who, who records at home uh, using software, then it doesn't matter if people are buying it or not. But I 
I'm very relational, collaborative type, and I want to record with other musicians, and I want to be recorded by someone who um, has cool ideas, but also will let me have my ideas and 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 will meld together. And that old school kind of way used to cost ten grand to make a record, and yes. now we're in inflation. So every time I make a new record. It costs a little more and massively less people hear it. So do you keep doing it because it's your heart and it's your joy? Or do you not do it because it's like absolutely financial suicide? Yes, these are the dilemmas of our life, aren't they? Because because so yeah. the last the last EP, which was recorded in November 19, 2019, yeah. this is the one, Love, what it? Yeah. What is it? This is the one that you do a cover of. The kids are all right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. listening. Yeah, that's a that's a great set of songs. Actually, I really enjoyed oh. listening to that today. Oh. So you had that was a that was um, yes, your experience of recording that was good. My experience of recording almost all the time is fantastic. It's such a fun process, you know. It, it's. I don't I I just think it's the funnest creative process period until you get to the, just the part where you're like mixing it and doing minutia like I'm doing I'm in that part of the phase right now because I have three new ones in my perfect world I take those four you know the ones with the kids are all right yes out three more and somehow scrounge up two more there's a couple covers I like I have an old song I like I have a new song from the pandemic, it's fine. I don't know if it's good enough to record. I mean, I would like to have another 10, but this is an old mentality. And one of my friends who's you know creative, probably 10 years younger than me, 15 years younger than me, he's like, well, why don't you, don't put out albums, just put out singles. But when I put out singles, there's no traction. I'll actually get a tiny bit of traction if I put out an album. There's no traction. You know, Brooklyn Vegan's not going to write about me. <laughs> it, it, uh, all of those, you know, all those really heavy blogs, they're not going to write about you. They, they, there's no entrance into it. Yes. It's very easy to get attention. It was. I mean, we had the gatekeepers in this sort of... We had gatekeepers yeah. and I could get through the gate. And, yes. and and this is a metaphor I make over and over again. I just made it uh, earlier this week to somebody who sometimes plays bass with me, wonderful person, Paul Martinez. I said before, you know, it was like there was a guy with a velvet rope, like at Danceteria, like at Mud Club, and you got let in or you didn't. And a lot of times I didn't get let in is when it came to something like a major record label, but when it came to the press, I could get those doors open so easily. Yes. But now it's like we are, there's so many artists and it's like we're in a, uh, what's what's comparable to a, to a mile, a kilometer. We're in like in a kilometer long warehouse full of storage units. And in each storage unit, is something really creative and special. But you'd have to have like, you know, all the keys of the world and you'd have to, or a skeleton key, and you'd have to go <laughs> open each one up to un, to 
you know, unwrap whatever creative, juicy magic is in there. And then we've got a culture of, you know, inattention and no one gives a shit. (laughs) (laughs) I know this is true. Friends, if they're young, they just want to go see their friends play. If they're old, they just want to go see whoever it was. For you, it would be the Smiths. For someone else, my generation might be B-52s. My husband just bought me tickets to see Liz Fair. I'd much rather open for Liz Fair. She's like my heroine. Yes. I'm that's the I mean, I don't go to any of these like nostalgia shows, but I'm gonna go to the Liz Fair one where she does exile in, in Guyville for the reasons that everybody goes to their uh those shows from their heart. But because I feel like that show. I mean, that album came out when I broke up with somebody. And when I pivoted from playing like wannabe honky tonk to something a little more truer to myself, so something a little more confessional and a little more just genuine, maybe. I, I, I love the country stuff massively. But, you know, I'm like a Jewish girl that grew up in New York and San Francisco. <laughs> I, <laughs> I wasn't hearing the coal miner's daughter. Right. God. I, I like the otherness of it and I like the form of it and I love the twang of it. I, I truly was a super fan. And but I it wasn't my most earnest presentation. I'm not embarrassed. I, I loved it. Uh, but you know, I was like wearing I was playing shows and buffaunting my hair and wearing like square dancing dresses. It just it was I was just sort of cartooning it up, but it came from a place of love. But now we might consider that like cultural appropriation. Yes, I think I think this is true. We would you'd get sort of like, yes, a little bit of a sort of yes, a little bit of a slap on the wrist for that, wouldn't you? And sort of made to feel a bit guilty. But um yes, this is this is what happens now. So coming going forward, obviously you've you on your band campaign, you've got some You've got your al- albums, you've got T-shirts, and you do fanzines as well, don't you? Well, they're not like real fanzines. You know, a fanzine is like, to me, <laughs> all about a band. And a lot of people have zines that really have a lot of content. My zines are just little folded mini-zines. You know, they're just they're just one paper folded, and I've collaged into them. And then sometimes I fo- fo- if someone wants one, I'll f- photocopy them and send them out. But they're yeah. not, I, mean, I had a fanzine in 1977 and 78. I published a fanzine. Excellent. It was called New Diseases. <laughs> what was it called? New Diseases. It only had two issues. Nice. Um, so this isn't at all like New Diseases, or it's not like someone's fanzine. You know, some, some cartoonists have little zines and they follow little narratives and arcs. This is just completely rando. And I was making a lot of them in that intersection where COVID met the uh, <laughs> coming election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden and I, and, and George, all the stuff with uh, Black Lives Matter and the, all the, just the anxiety and noise and stress of the moment. It, it seemed like making these little random zines. Sometimes they might touch on something in, in the moment but they're totally random. Mm. 
and I didn't sell too many of them. And then I have one that's a little bit more narrative. But to be honest, the way it's put together is funky. And I need to go find a solution where it gets photocopied or mimeographed nicely. Because I, I have one that I have a couple little zines that have these little narratives. And then most of them are these mini zines that are like kooky collages. Yeah. And I make a lot of collage, 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 collage. Um, yes, I know. I have an art journey too, you know, where I used to paint, but, you know, who wants to paint in their house? It's so messy. Then I started doing printmaking and, and taking classes. And then I had so many prints. I had too many prints. So I started cutting some of them up and reconfiguring them and sometimes sewing them. And, um, and that kind of, overlap with me starting to work at an art school because I retired. I was a a, a full-time kids educator in what we call public school. Right. I don't understand why you don't call that public school. What do you call the school you don't pay for? So yeah, so the public that would be a public school, whereas the one you pay for is private school you know it's a private school so um yeah that's that's the class division in our country so um yeah so it's a kind of state public school state school i think yes i think it's public yeah so that's the one we don't like the national health service yeah so i taught for you know at least 17 years full-time art to kids and now i am retired from that and then i just have a a bunch of little art teaching side hustles, including one online. And if any of your listeners want to reach out, my online class is a lot of fun. Uh, Excellent. It's, it's called collage-ish. Ish. <laughs> I-S-H dash, you know, collage dash I-S-H. And, uh, you know, it's pretty independent, uh, prompt-driven class with the occasional technical demo. But the focus... It's really a creativity class that's using mostly collage and mixed media as the the way to, um, you know, honor your creativity. Because most people have it and most people won't show up for themselves to um, to even, you know, there are artists with daily practices, just like there are writers with daily practices. And then there are many others of us who who need a little structure to show up so well, I have absolutely some... yes i think that's an important thing so i i find that as fun and as sustaining as playing music uh, but it's different it's different um you know i'm helping i'm helping others to do to get their art on i mean music's my favorite thing besides swimming i love oh, swimming good Blimey, have you cracked? Are you a good, you know, your crawl, your breathing? Is that is that? Crawl is terrible, but 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 my breathing was one of those pivoting moments when you talk about like you know you saw if you see a band and that was your pivoting moment. I would say, you know, Rolling Stones pivot, Mabuhay Gardens punk rock pivot, being taught how to breathe underwater pivot. Big change. Change yes. my life. That's I call amazing. it my underwater temple. 
<laughs> yes, absolutely. No, we we love we love swimming here, so that's good. So, look, just last last question: if you if you could have whispered something to your sixteen year old self starting out, is there any you know little bit of advice or words of wisdom that you would have just told them, even if that sixteen year old self would have gone, no, nope, not listening. Fuck those guys. <laughs> that's <laughs> <what> I mean. <laughs> and I don't mean that as in a, in a uh, sexual way. No, I mean, just fuck them. don't listen to them. Good don't, idea. Don't, don't 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 get your self esteem from them. <laughs> whether 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 I'm talking about peers or whether I'm talking about my dad who kind of did a number on me during punk rock. Fuck those guys. <laughs> yes, that's good. I that's a good. <laughs> Well, can look, you say that are you gonna to have to bleep that no no I'll, I'll i'll put it out it will be it will be absolutely fine look this has been That'll be the title fuck those guys fuck those guys but, but not I, in a I usually you know i usually don't love that question that what would you tell your 16 year old self uh i don't know why i've i've had it's come up in my writing classes um you know, other times I might answer it like yelling at myself because but right now, right now, the answer is fuck those guys. Yes, there you go. <laughs> well, no, it's it's good. It's good to be clear. But look, this has been fantastic. Thank you ever so much for this. This has been brilliant. And I'm so pleased. That... Put it out. I wish I was hoping so much I'd have my single out to time with this, but I haven't even mastered it. It's it's mixed. It's, it's mixed, but it's, it's close. It's close. But look, I'll put it out in the next couple of weeks. And if you want, I can send you the link and then you could put it on your, you know, social media platform site, which I think you've got on Facebook, haven't you? Yes. If you wait a month, maybe I'll put the single out. OK, let's leave it a month and then I'll put it out with the single. OK, that, would be that great. makes me have to do it. It makes me have to get it mastered. Yes. Money is really hell to master. It was three hundred dollars. So now with inflation, it's probably four <laughs> and money, <laughs> money is just so hard. It's uh, true. Shouldn't yeah. the money come in for the single, not money going out? <laughs> um, also, if anyone wants to help me out, uh, I'm a, I think I'm about to put a GoFundMe up because I applied for an art making residency in Mexico City. Yes. And I got but it's two grand. <laughs> it's two thousand dollars. I think that's about a thousand pounds. Plus, that doesn't count getting there and eating. Eating will be affordable. So, mm -hmm. if anybody wants, I, I'm going to put up a fundraiser where people could get a little index card artwork of mine or a postcard artwork of mine, uh, and try to raise some some dough for the for the um, art residency. It's not till January, but I have to, I have to pay $1,200 within in the next, I'm supposed to do it in the next six days. Oh my uh, God. So, so I'll probably just have to borrow from Peter to pay Paul. And then if I do my <laughs> fundraiser, uh, I can pay Paul back or. Peter yes, or this is, I know it's, it's, a, Anyways, it's a... I, I hate to be hyping, but sometimes people do want to help a project and actually I think people would rather do that and then get a little special artwork than just go out and buy your special artwork or go out and buy your <laughs> CD or whatever. And, and I think when there's a little, you know, people do like to help other people. Yes, absolutely. No, I think this is this is very true. I like to help other people. 
Yes, um, when we can. It's always nice to pay it forward. Can. It's so hard with the money, but when we can, pay it forward. And if not, pay it back. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but pay I it forward. I this. It was really nice to meet you. What part yeah. of are you in? Um, Norwich in the, e the UK, which is right on the East Coast. So um, we were over on that direction. Um, East Anglia. So you've got London, then you've got Ipswich, Norwich, and we're you know, towards the, the continent. So on that side, so. Um, how far from London or how far? Like about, about a hundred, it's about a hundred miles, 120 miles from London. Okay, so. two hours, two hours. Yes, two hours, definitely. So it's a so. small town life or it's a small city? It's a city, I suppose medium-sized city. Yeah, oh. London. So yeah, that's um Norwich. My husband is a, a total Anglophile. He won't watch any shows with me. That aren't set in Britain, right? He's 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 his own thing. He's Mexican, but he's obsessed with Britain and Scotland. Right, Scotland okay. Even more Scotland, I, even more. Did he like Downton Abbey? No, because he doesn't like rich people. He likes oh. he likes. No, he likes British crime procedurals. Right, <laughs> he likes things like. Hello, Mr. Prime Minister. What's that? Um, yes. Like, he likes 70s British sitcoms. You know, I, it's. Oh, yes. He's, he, you can hear him in the background. He's saying, yes, Prime Minister. Yes, Prime Minister. We did. But, oh, one of my but my one of my favorite shows is Spaced. That's a British show. Spaced. Yes. You know I, I That's one of my favorite shows from the whole universe ever. Of all times. Yes, I remember that TV series. It's it, it, it it's before Shaun of the Dead. Yes. Before Hot Fuzz. And all the guys blew up, but the woman, she should have blown up too. She's fantastic in it. Jessica. Jessica. Yes. That's the one. Yeah. No, I remember Space Nine. Go no. back and see it. That's my that's one of my favorite shows. Absolutely. Look, I must... Um, the Wire yeah, and Spaced. <laughs> I will. I will, will check that out. But look, thank you ever so much, and I'll keep in touch. Do, do, yes, and likewise. Okay, take care. Have a lovely day. See you later. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you. Bye. Bye. And that, dear listener, just in case you don't realize, is the, um, the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Jean Caffeine for giving me the time for that interview. I will include the uh, link to her website in the notes below. This has been The C86 Show, David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. These have all been archived interviews, that is, on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.